Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 2, verses 15 through 20. And this is found on page 2 in your pew Bible. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Aaron. Sorry we hid that from you this morning. It's part of our new uh, second service rhythm. We've got to remember to put that back up here. Um, well, good morning. My name's uh, Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and really glad to have you with us this morning. Thanks for being here, especially if this is your first time. I know walking into a new church or a church for the first time is not an easy thing to do, so thank you for doing that this morning and, and being with us. We're uh, really glad that you're here uh, this morning. would love to begin our time, as we do each uh, week before we look at the passage of Scripture read, um, to ask God's help, knowing that um, we need His help to hear His Word speak to us. And so I'm going to pray and ask for that right now. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you've revealed yourself to us in your Word, and I pray now as we look at this passage of Scripture um, that by the power of your spirit that you would make it new and fresh uh, to each of us, that um, it would be a living and active word uh, in each one of our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name and by the Spirit's power. Amen. Well, one of my favorite reads uh, this year was Walter Isaacson's book, The Innovators. And it really tells the story of the people who created the digital revolution. And Isaacson traces uh, all these kind of incredible innovations and breakthroughs and discoveries that led us to the place now where computers are really a, a part of our everyday life. And he begins with this brilliant uh, mathematician, Ada Lovelace, in uh, the 1800s all the way through to uh, the Mark Zuckerbergs of, of Facebook and that kind of thing today. And one of the themes that emerges in Isaacson's narrative, his telling of the story, is the importance of collaboration in teams and building on the work of, of one another and partnering together. And think about your phone in the context of this. So I'm sure most of us here have a cell phone, maybe even a smartphone that we carry around with us in our pocket and our purse. And just think about the complexity of that device. If you had a, a thousand years and a billion dollars, you couldn't build that on your own. I mean, the people, uh, tens of thousands of people were involved in making that. I mean, from the people who mine the aluminum that forms the case, the copper, the, is it the wiring? The lithium that makes the battery? The people who took sand and processed it into glass and silicon? And the engineers who make it work? The designers who make it beautiful? The marketers who let you knew that it existed in the first place? The delivery drivers who brought it to the store? The salespeople who so, sold it? 
And, and that's true for something incredibly complex like a phone or a computer, but even things far less complex, a t-shirt, a pen, a pencil. Uh, in fact, uh, Planet Money podcast did an entire series of episodes tracing the journey of a single kind of plain cotton t-shirt through the global economy and how many people are involved making a single plain t-shirt. And yet most of us don't think about this. And, and while it may amaze us when we do stop to think about it, what we discover as we turn to the page of the Bible is that while it is amazing, it actually shouldn't surprise us. You see, you and I were created in the image of God to work together to express neighborly love in and through the collaborative work that we do every day. But what does neighborly love mean? Is it more than just loving my individual neighbor? Could it mean that we're also called to love the neighborhood as well? Because what we discover is that we are much more of an individualistic society rather than a communal one, which just means that our tendency is to think me before we. But when we look at the pages of Scripture, we actually see that neighborly love is far more about, far more than just individuals caring for other individuals. Loving your neighbor actually means loving your neighborhood. And in this series, Neighborly Love, we've been thinking about how do we expand our understanding of what it means to love our neighbor? Is it, is it more than some of the narrow things that we typically think of? And we started with the story of the, the Good Samaritan that Jesus told, and we saw that compassion requires capacity. And then last week when we were in Genesis chapter 1, we looked at the fact that faithfulness and productivity can't be separated, that faithfulness and fruitfulness go together. And this week as we return to Genesis, this first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, we see that loving your neighbor means loving your neighborhood. And every neighborhood has a story, doesn't it? A story about how it was begun, the people who lived there, the ups and downs, the times when it was flourishing, maybe points when it was struggling. But what if there was one story that, that made sense of all the stories that we have about all the different neighborhoods what if there was one story that, that each story of each individual unique neighborhood that, that every one of those stories found resonance in? And in the pages of Scripture, we, we find such a story, a true story that makes sense of the stories of all of our neighborhoods. It's actually the big story that runs throughout the entire Bible. There's four big chapters. If you want to think about your Bible in, in these contexts, there's four big chapters the first one is what ought to be. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell us the story of what ought to be, how God designed the world to be. Then Genesis chapter 3 tells us the story of how the world rebelled and how things became broken. This is the story of what is, the world that we live in now. Then the bulk of the Bible from Genesis really all the way through to the final book of the Bible, Revelation, tells the story of what can be in light of Jesus' death and resurrection and, and his church and how he's working with the people to bring restoration to the world. And then the final two chapters of that last book of the Bible, we get a little glimpse of what will be one day when Jesus comes to make all things new. And we can look at the story of every neighborhood through this lens. What ought to be in this neighborhood? What is the reality of that neighborhood? 
What could be if we work together? What will be one day? So this morning, as we look at this, we're going to see that loving your neighbor means loving your neighborhood. And we're going to see four things. We're going to see loving our neighborhood means this, that we love our neighborhood when we remember what ought to be. We love our neighborhood when we don't ignore what is. We love our neighborhood when we work together for what can be, and we love our neighborhood when we long for what will be. When we remember what ought to be, when we don't ignore what is, when we work together for what can be, and we long for what will be. So first, we love our neighborhood when we remember what ought to be. And this is what we get a glimpse of in Genesis chapter 2. And it's really important to remember that. When we're looking at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this isn't the world we live in anymore. We live in a world that's broken and fallen. But Genesis 2 gives us a glimpse of what ought to be. Genesis chapter 1 gives us sort of a wide-angle lens of all of God's creation. Then Genesis chapter 2 retells the same story, but instead of being a wide-angle shot, it's a zoom-in shot on a people and place, God creating people and a place. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Again, it's on page 2 of the Pew Bibles. It's right there in the beginning, or look at it on your phone. Genesis chapter 2 tells the same story again as Genesis 1, but with this tight in lens. The Garden of Eden is the first neighborhood. People and places go together. God doesn't just create people. He also creates places, a place for them to live, the garden. And what do we call a place where people live together? A neighborhood. So listen closely to how people and place are linked in verses 7 and 8 in Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God placed a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. People in place together. Neighborhood. So what was this neighborhood like? What do we see here about what the neighborhood ought to be? What our neighborhood should be? Well, first we see that it's a place of contribution a place of productivity and fruitfulness. But before we get to that, we notice that Genesis chapter 2 opens with a tension, because if you go back and read the first few verses of that chapter, you realize that it's not yet complete. In verses 5 and 6, there are no plants, there's no rain, and there's no human beings yet. But then God forms Adam, he plants a garden, and he gives Adam a two-part job description. And you see it in verse 15. So take a look. Since the Lord God took man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That's the job description, to work it and to keep it. These are two really rich words, really rich concepts in the, in the Bible, and especially here at the beginning. The first one, work, means to nurture, to cultivate. And it's actually the same word that's used for worship in many contexts. The same word that's used for work is the same word that you find being used of the priests in their, their work in the temple For Adam, there is no Sunday to Monday gap. All of his work is worship, and all of his worship is work. It's a seamless whole. The second word, keep, means to guard, protect, steward. Humanity's job description, our job descriptions as people who bear the image of God, is to be productive and protective. 
We are contributors and caretakers. But the first neighborhood isn't just a place of contribution. It's also a place of collaboration. But as soon as we start talking about collaboration, again, we feel another tension in the text. Because at this point in the story, Adam is just there by himself. Who is there for him to collaborate with, right? I mean, it's just Adam in the neighborhood alone with a bunch of animals. And there's only so much collaboration you can do with an elephant and a couple of squirrels. And this is where we first hear in the story that something isn't good. All through Genesis chapter 1, you read every time after God something and he saw it and it was good. That refrain is repeated over and over again. But here we get something that's not good. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then God makes Eve. Now, the language of helper is it's often misunderstood in this context and made this, this perception of, of this somehow being degrading or appointing to women as being less than men. But when you really look into what this Hebrew word means and how it's used throughout the rest of the Bible, we see that you can't understand it that way because it's often, more often than any other usage, it's used to describe God. So you see constantly throughout the Psalms, the psalmist describing God as my helper, God be my help in time of need. Helper is not something less than in this context. Rather, it's, it's someone who you need that you're dependent on in order to, to, to survive. God is described as help. It points to our dependence on him, not in any way his weakness. So what does Adam need help with? What is it that he cannot do on his own? What's this job description of working and keeping? Now, obviously, it's true in procreation that he can't do this alone, but also in productivity. In fact, there isn't even mention of of, of procreation until Genesis chapter 4, at least not explicitly. See, God places Adam and Eve in the garden with this command to cultivate and to keep, and he doesn't just hold their hand through this whole process. Rather, he gives them all the raw materials of the garden, and he says, now work, work together to make something of this, to develop it. Contribution and collaboration. Now, some of you are probably thinking, now, Bill, do two people really count as a neighbor? That's like the smallest neighborhood I've ever heard of. But imagine what would have been Right? When we know the story, what happens in Genesis chapter 3, that, that things fall and they break apart and, and not as all as it should be, and we'll get to more of that in a moment. But imagine what would have been if that hadn't happened. The garden wouldn't have stayed as two people. It would have it teemed with life. And there would have been lots and lots more people that this garden was the first neighborhood, and it would have grown and expanded into the great neighborhood of humanity, into a city If we want to love our neighborhoods, we have to remember what ought to be. To start with what is right, to start with what's good, not just with what's wrong. Because it's easy to go into a neighborhood and see what's wrong, but we need to start with what's right, what ought to be. What is here in this place that still reflects some of the good design that God has for the world? Because we have to remember God's design. Unless we understand what ought to be, 
we will misunderstand what's wrong and then we'll apply wrong solutions. Remember what ought to be. Start with what is right. But second, we also love our neighborhood when we don't ignore what is. Human beings, Adam, Eve, they rebelled against God. They decided they could do better on their own without him. And when they did, everything shattered. Imagine with me for a moment that there's a a beautiful vase that's been carefully crafted, intricately decorated, and then it's knocked from its pedestal, and it comes crashing to the ground, and all those shards that were once a beautiful hole now become sharp and deadly. This is what happens in the fall, that all is not as it should be, that death enters, that everything that was beautiful is now marred. This isn't Mr. Rogers' neighborhood anymore. Work, productivity, procreativity, they become hard, difficult, toilsome, pain, death. And this is true whether you work at an office all day or you work all day at home. I was reminded of this. I saw this, this great comic the other day. And, and I think you're watching the clock no matter where you're at, right? I sometimes feel both of those things. I'm watching the clock when I'm at work and then I'm watching the other clock when I get home. We live in broken neighborhoods and we, all of us, continue to break them and be broken by them. Cycles of of destruction and taking value, extracting value rather than contributing and adding value. And we live in a world that is marred by broken individuals, broken systems, demonic forces. Every neighborhood, no matter how manicured the lawns, no matter how progressive the schools, is broken. Every neighborhood is impoverished because first and foremost, poverty begins with broken relationships, broken relationships with God and broken relationships with one another. So even neighborhoods that are materially prosperous are impoverished relationally. This is why we must begin with repentance. The great British author G.K. Chesterton in the 1900s, responded famously to a newspaper uh, request, an editorial request that said, you know, write on this concept of what's wrong with the world. And Chesterton returned a postcard with just two words scribbled on it. I am. We're what's wrong with the world. Here in Kansas City, our neighborhoods were broken through broken individuals and systems that encouraged and produced racial segregation and white flight. Blockbusting, this practice of, of having a black family move into a white neighborhood, and then real estate agents would go to all the white neighbors and say, look, this African-American family moved into your neighborhood. Your value of your property is going to drop. You better sell now, but you can still get the most for your house. They would put panic, and they'd say, oh, by the way, we built a new subdivision over here. If you're interested in buying something, I have something for you right here. Those families would move. The prices of the homes would depress. But then those real estate agents would mark up the prices and sell them to other African-American families, often at mortgages that they could not afford so that they knew that they would be foreclosed on so they could sell the homes again. Evil stuff happened in our city. This is 50 years ago. This is not that long ago. 
And we'll have a whole message on economic injustice in a couple of weeks because almost all injustice is economic in one way or another. This stuff happened. It happened in our city. And if we want to love our neighborhood, love our neighborhood, we can't ignore what is. As long as there are neighborhoods that aren't flourishing in our city, our city isn't flourishing. I I heard a great interview the other day with uh, Royals pitcher Danny Duffy, and he was talking about the fan support in Kansas City and how the city has so come around this team. And Danny said this, he said, oftentimes baseball teams talk about the fact that we lose as a team and we win as a team. But he said, I feel like here in Kansas City, either we win as a city or we lose as a city. And that's right on. And it's not only true in baseball, but it's true in every facet. If there are neighborhoods in our city that are losing, then our city is losing. And we can't ignore what is. Some of you, I know, can't ignore it because you live in those neighborhoods and, and you feel it every day and you're saying amen here. But regardless of where you are, we should all be working towards what our neighborhoods can be. You see, we're called to work with and for our neighbors, to take a holistic approach to what our neighborhoods can be. We love our neighborhoods when we work together for what can be in those neighborhoods, and and in the comprehensive way, every element of human existence, right? Relational, political, economic, spiritual, psychological, physical. But why? Why? Why should we care about our broken neighborhoods? And remember, it's not just the materially impoverished neighborhoods that are broken. It's all neighborhoods that are broken. Why should we care? Because this is what Jesus did. He came to the broken neighborhood. He moved in and he loved it. I love how Eugene Peterson uh, paraphrases John 1.14, the gospel of John begins with this great picture of Jesus, fully God, fully man, coming to earth to dwell with us. And listen to how Eugene Peterson phrases, paraphrases John 1.14. The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And we saw the glory with our own eyes, one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. See, Jesus calls us to follow him, yes, in pursuing the common good where he has placed us, but also in sharing what isn't common, namely the good news of the gospel, the good news of the forgiveness of sins. And economist Brian Fickert puts it this way, he says, pursue the common good, but what's really good is not common at all, and that's Jesus. See, yes, the gospel makes way for great collaborative efforts, but we can't ever forget that loving our broken neighborhoods is also a part of our call in the Great Commission to make disciples, to proclaim the good news of reconciliation with God and with one another that is the true impoverishment for all of us. Jesus, in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, describes his followers as salt and light. He doesn't say we should be salt and light. He says this is what we are. You are salt and light. We're called together to do good works and good work. And in doing so, bring glory to God and the gospel to our neighborhoods. This is what can be the church working together with and for our neighbors. If you want to love your neighborhood, You have to love your neighborhood. If you want to love your neighbor, you have to love your neighborhood. And one of the best ways to love your neighborhood is to do your work well. 
And you see, God intentionally designed and set up the neighborhood in such a way, the world in such a way, that humanity, in order to progress and flourish, needs the good work of one another. I love how Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, talks about this. He, he says, for example, how does God give a city security? Well, isn't it through lawmakers, police officers, and those working in the government and politics? So God cares for our civic needs through the work of others whom he has called to that work. Now let me pause here because I, I think some of us may be thinking that this message and maybe even this whole series is just sort of using biblical rhetoric to get people to work harder and, and make money and produce. And in some ways that's true. I mean, we want to work hard. We want to create value in our world. But it would be hollow at best and manipulative at worst if we neglected to answer the important question, to what end? Because for, for many of us, we think of business and commercial transaction as just sort of a necessary evil. I, I don't like that you have something that I need, but I guess I have no other choice than to buy it from you. Or that business is just business, work is just work, it's just part of what we have to do in life. But beyond that, it's nothing more. And I think both of these are flawed and unbiblical ways of viewing business and transaction and exchange. Instead of being a necessary evil or simply part of the means to the, of the good life, we should see business and exchange as an expression of neighborly love where we work for one another. One theologian explains it this way, by giving us the ability to buy and sell, God has given us a wonderful mechanism through which we can do good for each other. We should be thankful for this process every time we buy or sell something. We can honestly see buying and selling as one means of loving our neighbor as ourself. And over the past 20 years, the establishment of free and fair markets around the world with a focus on lifting as many people as possible to self-sustenance has resulted in nearly a billion people being lifted from extreme poverty. Now, there's still lots and lots of brokenness and corruption that infects our markets and our neighborhood, and there are many people who are still in desperate poverty, and no system is perfect. But this is a glimpse of the can of how when we collaborate through our work with our neighbors, flourishing, however incomplete, however incremental, can truly happen. See, when you create, improve, distribute, sell goods and services that improve the quality of life for the common good of all people, you are living into God's design for life and work set forth by him from the very beginning. Yes, the world is broken. Yes, we cannot ignore what is. But let's work together for what can be through the good work, creativity, productivity, job creation, all of these things are means which God has entrusted us with as human beings to love one another. Now, I realize at this point, this stuff is pretty abstract. Believe me, I understand that. So I want to show you an example of some people in Christ's community, a part of our congregations, who are actually doing this. So take a look. Uh, what do I do with most of my day? We, uh, I own a, a creative agency. Um, 
we, we get the opportunity to work with entrepreneurs and people that are starting new venture ideas, uh, consult with them and collaborate with them, and then work with a team of designers and developers to uh, build web apps, iPhone apps, and, and then try to launch new businesses. We wear multiple hats, and so from an owner's perspective, uh, George and I get to work collaboratively on where we're going, where we're going to take this thing. Uh, my name is George Brooks. I've been coming to Christ Community for just shy of 10 years now. My name is Dan Linhart, and my family and I have been coming to Christ Community for just a little over 10 years. As we work together in a collaborative environment, we're going to trust each other to not only own up to the accountability you have in whatever project you're working on, but we're going to trust each other's specialty as well. There's something amazing to come to our office, and that's why we bring our clients there a lot, is to see programmers, designers, product strategists, business people, project managers all in one room. Um, you come up with a, a wonderful thing, and it's a great solution to that can solve a great problem. So I, I like to use the odd is can will, the kind of four-part gospel. If this was the perfect business, you know, the, um, the ought of the business, if this was the perfect business, what would it look like? And but the reality is, is there's an is. Um, there's constraints, whether it's budget or time. A bunch of different factors are going to play into the success of whether or not that business works. And then the can is really, for me in our space, is what can this be? Um, within those constraints, we can do something great, but the best way to do it is to work as close to that ought as we could. And that ought would be really everyone with their different disciplines and their different strengths and gifts coming together for a great result. Work truly is, it's, it's a gift that we've been given to serve others. Um, and I, I love um, in the Old Testament when, when God says that I'm blessing you so that uh, you can be a blessing. That's kind of something that's stuck with me. A couple years ago, we worked with a, an entrepreneur um, that had an idea, and he was a brilliant man, and him and his co-founder were really smart guys. And we were there to really help provide the, the tool, the technology platform that was gonna help their company grow. Um, and again, in entrepreneurship, there's always that opportunity that's just not gonna work. When it does work, when a new company is formed that is solving a problem that actually does exist in the world, that is, it's, it's like magic. We were able to kind of help them set up the pedestal to grow their business. And the last time we met up with them, this is about six months ago or so, they had 85 employees, I think, at that particular location, and they had gone global. Well, those are jobs. Those are people now have jobs because of the thing that we helped start. And, and oh, by the way, other businesses are being formed by the money that they're lending. And, and just that's when it gets really exciting is that there was a problem to be solved. We were able to be a part of the journey to help solve it. I have a gift. I have a contribution, but it's not the full thing. I, I need to come here and give it to others. And if they're doing the same, that's where truly where we've seen and the clients we worked with and the products we built, that's truly where the greatness comes from. I know Dan and George uh, well, and George and his family actually were part of launching the Brookside Canvas. Many of you know uh, George and Jesse. And I know that this is truly their heart. I mean, you even heard George use that language of what ought to be, what, what is, what can be, and how they think about their work and, and entrepreneurship and helping start businesses and give tools and how they think about loving their neighbor and their neighborhood. And we're going to see a number of videos like this over the next couple of weeks of people in our congregation who are seeing these realities of God's design for their work and their collaboration uh, actually play out in their lives together. But we can't stop at the can. 
Because loving our neighborhood also means longing for what will be. Longing for and working to anticipate in small ways now what will be when Jesus returns to make all things new. Because again, as, as Brian Fickert, economist, reminded us, the goal isn't to make this neighborhood like that neighborhood. The goal is to make every neighborhood like the New Jerusalem. Uh, the goal isn't to make Nairobi, Kenya like Kansas City, Missouri. The goal is to make both places, Kansas City and Nairobi, more like the coming city of God. Jesus hasn't abandoned your neighborhood. He has sent the Holy Spirit. He's gone ahead of you. He's working through you, and he's working through others. So long for what will be. Pray for it. Hope for it. For Christ has promised to return and make all things new, to right all wrongs. You and I on our own, we can't bring the new Jerusalem. But Jesus, when he left, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, people in place together. And he's going to bring it. He's going to come and bring the new Jerusalem with him and bring about a renewed earth. And until then, we love our neighbors by loving our broken neighborhoods, awaiting God's coming neighborhood when Jesus will reign as king forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you have created us in your image and that even when we turned against you and rebelled against you, that you continue to pursue us and you are drawing us back to yourself and that you have not abandoned us and our neighborhoods, the places that you've made and that you love. I pray that we would follow after you and long for the day when you return to make all things new. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.